Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. David French of National Review is in for Jim Garrity, who is still off at the NRA convention. Jim will be back on Monday. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. So that's an upgrade from yesterday when we had no good news for you. Today we do have good news for you. And we're going to let Rick Santelli of CNBC tell you what it is. First look at first quarter GDP, and it is a whopper. 3.2% a three-handle on first quarter. It's supposed to be the dog of the year in terms of which quarters excel. This is really powerful. David, his excitement for GDP numbers is like you when the Grizzlies (laughs) win. So uh, 2.5% was what was expected. 3.2% is uh, what we got. And a lot of the uh, fundamentals leading into that final number also coming in better than expected. I know neither you nor I are uh, economic uh, wizards here, but uh, obviously higher uh, productivity, higher economic growth is a good thing, especially uh, with what Rick Santelli said a little bit later in his commentary, is that this was supposed to be the weakest quarter of the year. So if this is the base, uh, hopefully things will only get better from here. Yeah, well, not only was this, this supposed to be the weakest quarter of the year, just you know, a month or two months ago, there were a lot of rumblings that perhaps we were going to be, if not heading into a recession, you know, there weren't too many out-and-out predictions of a recession that we were going to we start to experience a significant slowdown. Just, you know, the economy is at at or near full employment. Um, We've had a lot of growth now for many years in a row with it accelerating most recently here in the in the Trump presidency. And so there was some concern that, you know, we might be peaking or we might be slowing down just a little bit. And so it's very encouraging to see these numbers in the first quarter. And as he said, this, you know, this is historically kind of a slower quarter. So we'll see. I mean, you know, at this point, uh, uh, the last thing that I'm going to do is offer any kind of economic forecast at all. (laughs) Uh, There's a reason why you don't see me writing too many columns about uh, the economy. It's because I'm not an economist. Uh, I leave a lot of this, uh, the economic analysis to uh, Ramesh and others at National Review. But, I, you know, you just can't look at this as an American and say that this is anything other than really good news. And when you combine it with some of the numbers that we've seen over the last year or more about not just GDP growth, but actual wage growth without uh, high inflation, which means, you know, people are actually better off. Um, If you have high inflation, then that can, you know, cancel out wage growth. But, you know, you have wage growth um, versus lower inflation. And some people are actually, people are actually better off now. So, you know, it's interesting here in, in middle Tennessee, you can just see with your own eyes, the economic growth and the economic progress. And I remember very distinctly the, the catastrophe in 08. And I remember going, it felt like going for years without seeing things like new subdivisions popping up. And now it just there's just construction everywhere. There's just economic energy everywhere, and it's wonderful to see. I know we're not economic experts, but what do we chalk it up to? What are the what are the folks you trust chalking it up to? Uh, some would say uh, corporate tax cuts. Some would say deregulation, you know, getting getting the government out of folks' ways. I suppose there's a variety of of factors here, but uh, uh, whatever it's doing, it's working. I'm not somebody who believes that presidents press the right levers and the economy booms. Uh, I do think, you know, when you have a severe, severe downturn, that uh, there's a lot of room upward after that downturn. 
Uh, I think the tax cuts have helped. I mean, they're they're in many ways sort of a conservative version of a stimulus. Um, and so, you know, the stat tax cuts have helped stimulate uh, the economy. They put real cash back into people's pockets and in corporations' pockets. And so I, I do think that helps. I do think a lighter regulatory environment or at least the restrained growth of the re regulatory environment helps. But, you know, look, the American economy has demonstrated for the past couple centuries that it, you know, the American people, when you have combined the American people with an essentially and basically capitalist system um, and the immense natural resources and that we've been blessed with in this country, that we have just a, an, a just a tremendous economic engine. And that tremendous economic engine has grown and grown and grown and grown and grown over the course of our history. Doesn't mean we're immune from downturns. We've had downturns. We had the crash in 08, we had the Great Depression. But if you look at the overall arc, when you combine the industry of the American people, the natural resources of the North American continent, and the rule of law and the capitalist system, and it's kind of watch out and just watch what we can do. So there are just sort of strong underlying fundamentals that exist. Um, and, and that's, you know, been a general trend in American history for a really long time, not to say without hiccups and not to say without problems on occasion. But um, when you have 300 plus million people on a continent this rich with uh, governed by the rule of law and with at least not too burdensome regulations uh, and an entrepreneurial spirit, that's a recipe for success. That all sounds so encouraging, David. It's a shame we're going to all have to throw it in the trash can over the next 12 years so to, to save our planet, because otherwise uh, we're all, we're all going to die. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, all of this is enjoy the party now, people. No, I mean, <laughs> look, you know, I, I consider myself a climate concerned person. I, I'm I uh, am not of the belief that uh, human beings can generate the amount sheer amount of energy that we generate without there being climate consequences to it. I, I think that's true. I also have a much higher degree of optimism in the ability of the free market and the ingenuity of the American people over time to deal with this. Um, and, you know, uh, I would say we, you know, for example, we have existing technologies that an awful lot of Americans can get behind that can ease the greenhouse gas problem uh, without fundamentally altering our way of life. For example, nuclear energy. Um, I've gotten to the point where it's hard for me to take anybody all that seriously making an environmental argument unless they're including nuclear energy as a fundamental part of the mix. Uh, because then it feels like you're focused on something other than the economy, uh, or I mean other than greenhouse gases when you're excluding nuclear. Uh, that you're wanting to sort of say, I want to fix this greenhouse gas problem, but only using specifically specific ideologically approved means and methods, which to me tells me it's not as big an emergency if you, as you think. I mean, like if an asteroid were heading to this Earth and we could all see it on a telescope and it's getting closer and closer and closer, and one of the most viable ways to stop it was a nuclear weapon, uh, and somebody said, no, 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 we just we need to just build rockets and push it away. <laughs> you would think, wait, do you see the same things I'm seeing? Um, but, you know, so so some of the some of the over the top activism, because it either excludes part of the solution for inexplicable reasons like nuclear or because it includes unrelated things like 
you know, universal basic income or universal health care that have nothing to do with climate, you start to wonder, is there the same priority about climate? Are there are there actions matching their words? But man, we just digress. All right, let's move on to our bad martini now, David. And uh, while Joe Biden is now officially a candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination, the words he seems to be saying most often in the last few weeks is, I'm sorry. Uh, he said it to uh, all the ladies that uh, felt uncomfortable with his nuzzling or handsiness or whatever euphemisms the media like to use for him that they would never use for a conservative. Uh, and then he also uh, apologized to Anita Hill because, gosh darn it, he just wishes he could have done something to make the, the confirmation hearings different back in 1991 because, after all, he was only the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time. <laughs> but uh, Anita Hill, not, uh, not satisfied. Uh, New York Times. Ms. Hill, in an interview Wednesday, said she left the conversation feeling deeply unsatisfied because Biden had called her to apologize and declined to characterize his words to her as an apology. She said she is not convinced that Mr. Biden truly accepts the harm he caused her and other women who suffered sexual harassment and gender violence. Quote, I cannot be satisfied by simply saying I'm sorry for what happened to you. I will be satisfied when I know there is real change and real accountability and real purpose, she said. Quote, the focus on apology to me is one thing, but he needs to give an apology to the other women and to the American public because we know how deeply disappointed Americans around the country were about what they saw, and not just women. There are women and men who now have just really lost confidence in our government to respond to the problem of gender violence. So, David, I remember those hearings. I know you do as well. Uh, they were a bit circusy at times. I don't know what Joe Biden would have done differently. He was certainly very sympathetic to Anita Hill at those hearings. I know the panel was all men at the time, and there were some questions about whether she was a scorned woman and so forth. A lot of folks on the left, anyway, took offense at. But uh, as conservatives remember that moment, uh, it wasn't Anita Hill who was the victim there. It was Clarence Thomas. So apparently Anita Hill is still the one we have to uh, grovel to here. Yeah, you know, this is people forget that this was a a Democratic controlled Senate that voted to confirm Clarence Thomas after the Anita Hill hearing. So Anita Hill comes forward. She states her case under oath and Clarence Thomas denies the allegations against him. And, you know, the contemporary polling at the time, more people believe Clarence Thomas, the Democrats voted to confirm Clarence Thomas. And there are reasons for this. Um, elements of Anita Hill's story morphed and changed over time. She added details and embellishments that she did not tell, for example, investigating FBI office, uh, agents. Um, there are things that she said that just flat out couldn't match a, a reasonable timeline. Uh, there, so in other words, her, her story morphed and changed. Clarence Thomas stayed consistent in his steadfast denials. People saw the changing her changing story, and they didn't believe her. And, and look, you know, she received a fair hearing she received. Now, a lot of feminists will now say, well, it wasn't fair because people were sort of too harsh with her. But look, you know, when you bring a sexual harassment case in court, you are cross-examined. And I'm going to tell you, because I've been involved in, and I've been a lawyer for um, defendants in sexual harassment cases. in you know, years ago, I used to work in, in big firms and occasionally I'd be pulled into the larger and more complex sexual harassment cases. And, and I've been in these depositions and a person is tested on cross-examination. Their story is tested on cross-examination. That's not unfair. That's not wrong. 
it's absolutely necessary. And it seems to me that the that the harm, quote unquote, that Anita Hill suffered as a result of the hearings is that she was she was aggressively tested and questioned. But that's the way this goes. That's part of due process. And it is nobody's fault. It is not Joe Biden's fault. It's nobody's fault but her own that her story didn't withstand that questioning, that her story changed or that elements of her story uh, were it was almost impossible that they could actually be true. And so that's not Joe Biden's fault. But, you know, in this sort of hashtag believe women era, the idea that A, Anita Hill was not believed or B, that she was subject to aggressive questioning. Both of them are considered to be independent harms now. They're considered to be independent wrongs. And that's just not the case at all. Uh, It is not the case that it is a harm or a wrong to be subject to aggressive questioning when you make serious claims against somebody. And by the way, let me just say this. Um, What Anita Hill accused Clarence Thomas of, and it's kind of moot because Thomas just flat out denied all of it. So if if it did actually occur, then, you know, Thomas wouldn't be qualified because he because he would have lied. But let's suppose her accusations were true. They didn't add up to hostile environment sexual harassment under the law. What they added up to was sort of, you know, gross or immoral conduct. But they didn't even add up to what uh, hostile environment sexual harassment under the law. And so she was given an opportunity to prove a case um, about really behavior that wasn't actually illegal. Um, and so I don't think that that you know, aside from, you know, what people might have said out in the public that were harsh or unfair or vicious or mean, which always happens when people come forward in contentious uh, in contentious matters. I don't think that there that she was mistreated. I don't think that Joe Biden has anything to apologize for. Um, and oh, by the way, I don't think Joe Biden can apologize his way into the presidency. Um, I do think, though, he's trying to clear the decks right now. He's trying to sort of deal with lingering controversies while nobody really is paying attention much in the broader public so that he can go on attack the rest of the way. But but uh, if this becomes a dominant theme of his candidacy, he's sunk. He can't just sit there and keep apologizing for everything he's done in the last 35 years of public life. What do you make of the fact that Clarence Thomas, at least in the conventional wisdom, is still assumed to be guilty? It's it's disgusting. Um you know, it's it really does show the power of the mainstream media over time. So in the moment when Americans heard from them both directly in the moment, Americans tended to believe Clarence Thomas. Um, and and again, it's worth saying this was a Democratic Senate ultimately confirmed him. So the Senate controlled by the opposing party from the president. Um, confirmed him after hearings in which both sides were heard and the American people as a general rule sided with Clarence Thomas. Um, But over time, because the American people don't write the histories of that moment, um, there has been sort of this background conventional wisdom that is locked in that says Anita Hill was done wrong. And because conservatives don't have exactly the same kind of enduring media institutions with the same kind of reach, then it's very hard to rebut that conventional wisdom. Fox News didn't exist at that time, for example. Um, and, you know, every single major press outlet at that time was 
at cent- in the center at best, but it's either center left or progressive in its outlook and its staff. So that kind of that has an incredible power to lock in a conventional wisdom. I think that power to lock in conventional wisdom has decreased because people have many more uh, news outlets now. And we have a different problem that's presented itself, which is not exactly that we have more knowledge. It's that we're kind of more cocooned, (laughs) more walled off into our respective comfortable cocoons. But this does show the enormous power that mainstream media has exercised over the last 30 plus years to shape narratives and to uh, shape American understanding of the past. All right, let's go to our crazy, David. And I could have built it better at the top. This is a double-barreled crazy. We're going to be spending time in two different states with two different public officials, one in Massachusetts and one in Maryland. And the issue will start in Maryland, where Catherine Pugh is the mayor of Baltimore, but she's under investigation for the fact that a lot of the books that apparently she either ghost wrote or they just slapped her name on it uh, entirely uh, was bought up by hospitals and other local uh, government entities that depend on their funding from the government. So in other words, they bought them because they were trying to get in good with the mayor. Uh, Healthy Holly was the name of the book. As a result, now you've got uh, the FBI and the IRS raiding one of Mayor Pugh's residences in Baltimore. They're initially been an erroneous story that she fled the state. That was not true. But perhaps what is true is even more disturbing. Her attorney is a guy named Steve Silverman. And when he was finally reached for comment on Wednesday, he said, quote, she is not in a very good place physically and mentally. She doesn't have the energy to focus for an extensive period of time in order to make important decisions. So we just need to get to that place. According to Silverman, Pew's condition hasn't improved and she remains under medical care. She's been dealing with pneumonia and uh, developed bronchitis. And now she's also dealing with a lot of stress because of all the legal issues here. Over to Massachusetts now, and this is CBS News. A trial court judge and a court officer have been indicted on federal charges of obstruction of justice. CBS Boston reports prosecutors allege that Newton District Court Judge Shelley Joseph and court officer Wesley McGregor helped a defendant leave through a back door to avoid being detained by an ICE officer. The U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts announced details of the case Thursday afternoon. A short time later, the Supreme Judicial Court announced Joseph has been suspended without pay until further notice. Essentially, what happened is they uh, went to a sidebar uh, in this case after the ICE officer had come into the court before the proceedings, informed the judge of who he was, who he was there to pick up after the proceedings. She turns off the recording equipment, according to prosecutors. So they have a a discussion between the judge and the defense attorney, and uh, they allow for the defense attorney to take the client to another room in the courthouse building where they slip him out the back door and the ICE officer doesn't get his man. So, David, what do you make of these two? Oh, man. America's public servants. My goodness. Uh, You know, let's start with the judge first. To really emphasize, well, let's first emphasize these are allegations. Um, they'll, you know, they'll either be proven or not in court, but the allegations are pretty, uh, interesting. It's essentially a judge blocking enforcement of federal immigration laws to preserve their presence in this country of a three-time deportee who was, uh, accused of narcotics possession. Now this is not when people are going to say the sort of the poster child for uh, illegal immigration in the U.S., I doubt this is the guy that they're going to want to put out there. Um, 
you know, we've seen stories, you know, heartbreaking stories of people being deported who, you know, maybe, for example, had a restaurant that was a important part of the community for a decade or, you know, there have been illegal immigrants who face deportation, who their stories are just, you know, pretty darn heartbreaking. Um, but this is not one of those stories. And the idea that a, a judge would risk her liberty to protect his presence in the country is just, it's so bizarre. It's so bizarre that part of me keeps thinking there's got to be the re- rest of the story here. Is there a personal relationship involved anywhere? Is there money that ex- has exchanged hands? Is Are the allegations just flat out wrong? It's so strange that you're sitting there going, wait a minute, <laughs> when's the next shoe going to drop? And then the Baltimore situation. My goodness. And so here you have somebody who's essentially being, you know, charged with uh, that that has been taking a huge amount of money <laughs> uh, for having written a, a children's book that seems to have been a vehicle for some sort of graft um, and then has just disappeared from the public scene and now is apparently too, too mentally disabled to even write a resignation letter. Um, it's just bizarre. And Look, I know there are an awful lot of good public servants in this country, so I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. Um, But let me just highlight, I think, a problem that we have in this country. I think that we have created a system where so many good people look at politics and just say, I don't need that. I don't want that. I don't want to be a part of a system like that. And that we, it's almost as if politics has a pre-screening mechanism that just is going to filter out good people while allowing the bad in. <laughs> um, not to say there are good people who press through and, and serve and do wonderful things for the public. There are, there are great public servants all across this land. But the way in which our politics has become dysfunctional, I, I feel like means that there is a certain percentage of potential public servants who don't get involved just because they don't want to deal with it. Um, the good people, there are good people who press through, but an awful lot of good people are screened out. But there's no real screening mechanism for, for sort of the nakedly ambitious, opportunistic, shameless people. Um, they glide right on in there. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why we have collapsing trust in our public institutions. It's just so toxic that good, stable people often don't want to be a part of it. But a lot of the more shameless, uh, nakedly ambitious people have no problem with toxicity. In fact, they create it. And so um, I, I, you know, I think that dynamic is in play sometimes and it can lead to some of this insanity that we see. And things just get worse for Baltimore. We had the, the mayor oh who uh, let the rioters have their space. Was that the line it was uh, after the whole Freddie Gray uh, right. chaos? I don't remember Baltimore. the line exactly, but it was a permissive it was a permissive attitude was taken towards actual rioters. Yeah. And so now this, and uh, it's been a rough stretch for Baltimore. Hopefully they can get some competent leadership there in short order. There is already essentially a call to resign. There is a direct call to resign from Governor Hogan. There's veiled uh, calls to resign from Democrats, Elijah Cummings and Dutch Ruppersberger in Congress. They didn't actually use the word resign, but they encouraged Mayor Pugh to do what's in the best interest of Baltimore. So why you can't just go the extra sentence there, I'm not quite sure. But uh, <laughs> David, uh, thanks so much for filling in for Jim today and yesterday, and we'll talk to you soon. 
Thanks so much. David French of National Review in for Jim Garrity today. Jim will be back on Monday. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Have a great weekend, everyone, and please tune in again Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.